Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, rebuilding Christendom, restoring Catholic culture and tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, the editor of One Peter Five. I am joined today by Mr. Charles Coulomb. Mr. Coulomb, how are you doing today? Very, very well. I uh, I just got uh, the train back from Budapest to Vienna, so it's a little murder on the Orient Express feeling, you know. Excellent. Yes, uh, we're we're very happy to uh, honored to speak with you today. Uh, we've just announced you as the one of the contributing editors, and definitely a honored and critical piece of what we're trying to do at One Peter Five as an expert on Christendom which we will have your article up tomorrow on what is Christendom. So everybody look forward to that. And but before we get into our conversation, uh, Mr. Coulomb, if you don't know him, he's accomplished author, speaker, defender of all things Christendom and Christ the King. He has a wonderful podcast with Mr. Vincent Franchini at Tumblr House. That's linked below. His latest book is on Blessed Carl of Austria. He's also the author of Puritan's Empire and Vicars of Christ, among many others. Do you have any uh, current projects or anything you'd like to promote besides those things, Mr. Klum? Well, other than mentioning my penultimate book, A Catholic Quest for the Holy Grail, which I'm very fond of, um, there... Um, it looks like a, a new book is coming together on the horizon, uh, which, um, let's see, it's, it's quite new. Basically, it would be a collection of uh, the Archduke Otto von Habsburg's observations on America and the relationship between America and Europe. Uh, you might say, You might say that uh, the, the Archduke was really uh, the keenest observer of our country since de Tocqueville, or maybe even before. And I think that right now, especially when the old definitions of what it means to be an American are falling apart, um, I think his insights would be very, very useful. Because, you know, somewhere between where the last best hope of mankind in the shining city on the hill on the one hand and on the other hand the founded in genocide built in slavery narrative somewhere between these two which are really the flip side of each other there has to be room for a genuine love of country a genuine patriotism built upon what the country is and that uh, and what the uh, what the Archduke saw in that is what I um, I hope to uh, pull out with this with this particular project. Um, we have a publisher who's amenable. Uh, there's a lot I, I can't tell you because the thing's far from finished. I hope to have the uh, actual compilation and everything done by the end of the summer, and by that time I'll be ready to reveal a lot more. But uh, it was it was interesting during my uh, my book tour, and because this was already in the wind at that time, during my book tour in early August in D.C., uh, the uh, venue had to be switched from Old St. Mary's to St. Thomas the Apostle. Old St. Mary's has the 
biggest shrine to Emperor Carl in the United States. But for various reasons, we were uh, we had to leave there and went instead to St. Thomas the Apostle, which by sheerest coincidence was Archduke Otto's parish during the war. Now the church building is there, was only built in 1950. Where I spoke in the Undercroft was where he would have gone to mass. Wow. So, yeah, and I only found that out the night I was speaking. So I found, <laughs> the, the, uh, the thing is, though, seriously, that um, so much of what affects us now is deeply and intimately connected to the old continent. And, of course, being here makes that all the more obvious to me. Uh, we tend to forget that we Americans are, in a sense, the most European of Europeans because of the whole continent dumped down in somewhere new. We don't think of ourselves that way, but you look back in your own background or anyone you knows, and they're everything from Portugal to Russia. Yeah, and that true. is the American. Yes. That's a great point. It sounds like a fascinating read. Uh, especially as Americans are struggling with their own identity, as uh, as you say, uh, definitely a there is a complex history which you've written about between those two extremes. Um, well, we look forward to that. Um, in our conversation today, the I, I really wanted to ask you before we start talk about we want to talk about the ordinary mostly, but uh, I wanted to ask you about. Traditiones Custodes, because you're one of the few people I know who was alive when the Roman pontiff basically tried to do this before in 1970, you were 10 years old. Yeah. So how do you see similarities and differences with what happened in 1970 and what has happened now? Well, uh, the similarities outweigh the differences, frankly. Although one thing that's important to remember is that Starting in 1962 or three, when I was quite little, uh, they kept on coming up with changes, dropping the prayers at the foot of the altar, getting rid of the last gospel, uh, less and less Latin. In 66, they got rid of Latin from the canon. And this was a, you know, it seemed like every time you turn around, there was another change to the mass. By the time the new mass was introduced, the old mass wasn't very different. Um, the biggest difference being that uh, the, the apparent difference being the, uh, in a lot of places, the versus populum, and then the, uh, uh, the introduction of three new canons, which, and then of course you had after that, you had a rush of stuff, uh, which were not directly part of the new mass. You had, Eucharistic ministers, then you had altar girls, then you had communion in the hand. Uh, and that came in between 70 and 76. Um, at the same time, in, uh, except in a few places, you had priests who wanted to retrain, retain the Latin, uh, really stepped on. I mean, just abused horribly. Uh, if you were a layman and you expressed any sort of disapproval, uh, you'd get smacked around, unless, of course, you were my father, who didn't smack easily. 
Uh, it was always fun to watch Priest Strive out. Uh, the, uh, it, I mean, it, it was pretty horrific. The thing you've got to bear in mind is that the, the hatchet men, if you will, who did the tricks, who did the thing, they didn't originate the stuff, obviously, which was from people in Rome and elsewhere uh, who were older and, and presumably better educated. These, it, seemingly in those days, every parish had a Vatican II priest, quote unquote, who was young and brash and annoying and brutal. Uh, and if you questioned him, he'd be all over you. That was the origin of the uh, genre of priests we used to call screamers. Because if you questioned, they'd scream. Now, these creatures, um, well, my late father used to say to my brother and me, if you lose the faith, you leave the church, the priests and the nuns have won. And it was specifically that kind of priest that he was talking about. Well, they uh, got rid of any kind of Eucharistic adoration, at least in the United States. People forget that until John Paul II uh, came along and started pushing for it in 1980, benediction and adoration had virtually disappeared. Uh, when I was going for my adultery uh, day, uh, which is the Boy Scouts uh, Catholic Award, uh, you've got to demonstrate a certain knowledge of the faith, etc. I remember Father Dahlheimer, SJ, at Blessed Sacrament Church, our parish in Hollywood, when I asked about the monstrance, because you have to demonstrate knowledge of the sacred vessels, what they are, the ciborium, the chalice, the patent, and all. Well, I said, what about the monstrance? This is all, that's all pre-Vatican II. We don't do that anymore. And of course, anything like that was dismissed as pre-Vatican II. You had priests pulling the rosary apart in the, from the, in the pulpit to show that a new age had dawned. And of course, that was the era when uh, Christ Among Us by the, late, the former father, Anthony Wilhelm, was the leading catechetical book. Uh, and it was horrific. Wow. So horrific that in 1985, John Paul II himself directly lifted the imprimatur. Wow. Which was kind of unheard of. But it was the most popular catechetical book when I was in high school. So to answer your question, it was horrible. And in 1974, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued an unsigned note forbidding the use of the old missiles and so on. Now, we know that this was ultra vires, but it didn't matter. Clerical careers were destroyed across the globe with this particular thing. You see, this was a terrible injustice that I'll literally say cried to heaven for vengeance. Now, having said all that, John Paul II comes in. One of the first things he tackles is Eucharistic adoration and the abuse of the Blessed Sacrament widespread by the kind of cleric I've described. And Eventually, he brought in the um, indult. He had a commission of cardinals look into the legal status of the Tridentine Mass. And they found that despite the, uh, the uh, unsigned note of the CDW, Corprimum was still in effect. Because, of course, 
I mean, there's some argument as to whether it could be abrogated, but if it can be, it would have to be done by legislation of equal solemnity. And that, of course, was not done by Paul VI and has not been done, which right. is the basis upon which Benedict XVI said that the uh, old books had never been outlawed. Now, the problem with uh, this new so-called motu proprio, and I say so-called because it doesn't exist in Latin. And since it doesn't exist in Latin, the good argument may be made that it doesn't exist. Wow. It's not cognizable. It's not a I know that's a big word. <laughs> yeah. Some people don't know, especially <laughs> some people in high office in the church. But that's okay. I mean, if lack of faith shouldn't be an impediment to rising in the ranks, why should lack of, of knowledge? At any rate. So what happened, however, is that under JP2 and B16, as people like to call them, John Paul II, the 16th, um, the young Vatican II priests, of whom I've spoken, although many of them, of course, left the priesthood and married partners of one gender or another, many others went to prison, but those who didn't, they rose to the ranks and waited through what was for them a long, dark night of adult supervision. And then, having grown old without growing up, they were in charge of the church, as they are now. And so, like the Lone Ranger, they wish us to return with them once again to those days, of those thrilling days of yesteryear, when they were alive and thought they meant something. And we're going to turn the church into their own image. Well, they were stupid and annoying in 1968. Now they're stupid and annoying and old. And I say this as a very junior member of the same generation. You know what they call my color hair in Austria? What? Friedhof Blond, which means graveyard blonde <laughs> <laughs> so i am afraid that um the, the, the graveyard screamers yep yep <laughs> and really In when you read the text of the so-called motu proprio the the desperation and the shrillness, ooh, he's upset, ooh. Well, little old ladies of all genders dominate the church today. And uh, I'm afraid that only age, time, death can clear them out. Unfortunately for me, of course, <laughs> the writing on their wall is also on mine. So I'm afraid I, I probably won't see a great deal of their departure, but I can hope. I was a little boy when they came in. Perhaps I won't be quite as little, uh, as little an old man when they're taken out. One can only hope. It's in God's hands, not ours. But uh, yes. no, I mean, it, it really, if it were any other context, it would be ridiculous and we'd all be pointing and laughing. Yes. 
unfortunately, it involves souls going to hell, not least of all theirs. And that, you know, I, I, in the past few years, I've had many young seminarians, young priests, and so forth complain to me that their superiors hate them, and they don't know why. You know, I've tried to be conciliatory. I've tried to, I don't understand. Well, says I to them, what you don't understand, Father, is that you yourself are a living rebuke to them, to everything Monsignor has ever done or believed, just by virtue of being who and what you are. It's not what you're doing. It's not what you're saying. It's, not what you're, it's just that you, because by existing, and by loving the church as she has always been, you're basically saying that her life, or I mean, his life, whatever, the, the Monsignor's life was a waste. No one appreciates that message, no matter how well-deserved it may be. Even if it were absolutely true, the world would be a better place had I never lived. Don't think I would enjoy your telling me that. And the truer it would be, the worse it would be for me and the worse my reaction to you. You know, when you prick people's consciences, they don't generally react with, wow, thanks for that insight. I never realized what a loser I am. That's not usually what happens. When you prick our consciences, what we're likely to say is, well, you worthless. And again, the truer it is, the worse it is. So, uh, well, that's 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 great. I, per, if you'll permit me, um, I'd love to if you could talk at all about what your father did to get you through this this period, because it, it sounds like your father was this rock through this insane iconoclastic revolution that you had to live through as a young boy. Yep, no, he was, and you see, my dad he always used to say Catholicism is a thinking man's religion. And that is something he is very committed to. Uh, he was well-read, you know. And the other thing about my dad is that he was a French-Canadian from New England. And the reason why that's an important thing to understand is that, number one, before the Revolution Tronqui, the quiet revolution of the 60s, the French-Canadians were the most Catholic people in North America. And I, and I say that without, and, and no, God knows they had rivals for the job. Uh, the uh, French of Southern Louisiana, the uh, uh, Hispanos of Northern New Mexico, some of the Pennsylvania Dutch, various other ethnic islands around the urban centers. You know, so it's not like we were the only ones in the running, but we had the biggest space, shall we say, and the oldest continual culture outside of well, the Hispanos, really. Um, the conflict between the, uh, the French Canadians, a lot of them, and the Irish hierarchy in New England in the 20s uh, was the immediate uh, backdrop of my father's upbringing. Okay. And he had had half the day in English, half the day in French. And while he was in the, while he was a great lover of the United States, he was a tail gunner in World War II against the Japanese and so on. 
and he um, didn't graduate high school. He left for the war on his 18th birthday. Uh, he, um, nevertheless, he was very, very proud of being French Canadian uh, and very devout as a Catholic. So he had very little trust in the hierarchy, which was an inheritance from the Sentinel affair. And he used to say when they started going crazy, he says, well, now their exteriors are conforming to what they always were inside. And he used to say, you believe the faith because it's true, not because of what this or that man says. If this or that cleric goes along with the faith, great. If not, not. And also he was, you may find this hard to believe, but he had a tremendous sense of humor. And so I remember we were walking out back of uh, Blessed Sacrament, not to be specific, in Hollywood, uh, the Jesuit church. But I don't want to point fingers. And it so happened that there was a pile of scotch bottles and things like that in the rectory trash. And Dad says, now, you know how you can tell whether or not that's a scandal? I said, I don't know how. The sermon in the morning. If it's good and orthodox, well, then Father likes a wee nip now and then. On the other hand, if it's heretical garbage, the worthless drunk, look at that. <laughs> but, and, and actually, the sense of humor was a big part of it because, uh, you know, he used to say, all you can do with things you can't alter is to laugh at them. And it annoys the objects of your, of your humor at the same time. <laughs> uh, in 68, when uh, I was in second grade, my brother was in eighth. We had the big explosion with the IHM nuns at Blessed Sacrament. Not just there, but throughout the LA Archdiocese. And this too was, was a big formative thing for me because... Um, it was a real exposure to the abuse of power by those in authority. Uh, they had a sort of um, plebiscite in each class. You had to, they called your name. This is after they dropped their habits. They called your name. You had to stand up and say yes or no. Yes, if you agreed. No, if you didn't with their dropping the habits. And of course, you know what they wanted. So in, in my class, everyone said yes until she said, Coulomb, and I stood up and I said no. She said, well, Mr. Coulomb, won't you get up to the front of the class and explain to us all why you disagree? And I said, all right. And I was very angry, I can tell you, but I knew expressing my anger wouldn't help. So I said, well, sister, a soldier has his uniform, uh, none, a priest has his cassock, and a nun has a habit. If she doesn't want to wear it, she shouldn't be a nun. Well, she couldn't get overwrought at me because I hadn't been disrespectful. So she just said, sit down. But after me, everybody said no because I had not been consumed by fire. With my brother, who was in eighth, eighth grade, uh, he same scenario, but when he was sent up to the front to explain, he said, well, sister, I don't understand. If you don't have to obey the cardinal, why do we have to obey you? And my dad got calls from two very angry uh, nuns that day. And to mine, when she said, what's wrong with your son? Why does he want to be progressive? You know, it says this about a second grader. Dad said, well, gee, sister, I don't know. I guess he'd rather be right. 
with my brother when she angrily told him what he had said. Dad's response was, well, sister, he's asked a perfectly valid question, and it's not one that I can answer. <laughs> I suggest you try. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it went from bad to worse. <laughs> but uh, in terms of, of now, a lot has changed in the sense that back then, for most Catholics, if uh, the authorities said, you've got to wear your underwear on your head now. Well, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, but I'll do it. But um, all the moral capital that the hierarchy had then has been spent. And now, people, instead of saying, okay, boss, uh, people are asking, well, wait a minute, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why are you saying this? And of course, what makes the, the current amusement so so ridiculous is number one, the uh, regardless of whether or not the uh, whether or not the culture, uh, I'm sorry, my mind's whether or not the uh, motu proprio really exists. The fact remains that it's a direct contradiction of what Benedict the Sixteenth said. So basically what's happened is that Pope Francis has put us in the position of having to say which one of them is right. Do you agree with Benedict or do you agree with Francis? Now, given that Benedict has repeatedly demonstrated both his intelligence, his knowledge, and his love of the Catholic people, Whereas our current Holy Father has repeatedly demonstrated his ignorance, his nastiness, and his, well, his look at what he did with the poor Chinese Catholics. What he did to the trans pales in comparison. Can you imagine the enormity of handing over the underground church to the tender mercies of the Chinese government? That would be like St. Pius V telling the recusants that they had to conform to Elizabeth in England. That's what he did. Now, there doubtless he had his reasons for doing it, the way Paul VI had his reasons for betraying Cardinal Mincente. In Paul VI's case, the reasons that do make some sense. He wanted to restore normal church life in Hungary, and that wasn't going to happen as long as Mincente was in the embassy. So the argument could be made, I suppose, that perhaps Pope Francis wants to do the same thing with China. But the results have been horrific, and he doesn't seem to care. I say seem because he is the most valuable pope of my lifetime. The man never stops talking. Uh, he told La Nación in Buenos Aires that uh, the Holy Ghost had given him the gift of unawareness. Well, <laughs> he gave me the same gift, but I try to hide it. I don't point it out to people. I, I, it, it is flatly amazing to me that he is as brutal and as uncaring as he is. But people I know who knew him in Buenos Aires in Argentina say that he was the same then. And of course, 
he is of that generation of Vatican II priests. And so why would he be different? I mean, chronologically, they had to get one of their own in there sometime. Yeah, Jesuit ordained in 1969, right when the mass came out. And the same year became provincial in Argentina. Think about that. The very year he's ordained, he's made provincial. And when I first read that, I thought that was bizarre. But apparently the uh, uh, Pedro Arupe was the general of the Jesuits then and was damaged goods if ever anybody was damaged. He was an eyewitness of the atom bomb in Japan. And uh, as a result, kind of hated the United States. He chose Jorge Bergoglio to reorganize the Argentine Jesuits according to his tastes. That's the story I have heard. Um, It certainly would explain why they made him provincial the year he was ordained. That nobody ever seemed to remark on that. And then, uh, you know, he went on to be very unpopular with his brother Jesuits, which is hardly a surprise if he wasn't fat to hatchet man. And then uh, he was plucked from uh, well-deserved obscurity by the last Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Yeah, that's that's very uh, telling um, and interesting, especially considering all the intrigue with St. Gallen Mafia and everything and, and what he's doing now, according to the vision of Cardinal Martini. Um, and that's, that's a whole nother topic. Um, but uh, in two days, we have Michaelmas. Do you want to um, comment at all about your favorite customs for Michaelmas and previous customs, anything like that? You bet. Michaelmas is one of my favorite feasts. Why? Because I love St. Michael the Archangel. That's why. And I'll, I'll tell you, I always have, and I never really understood the reason why until I was in junior high. And I found out that his major feast in the Byzantine Rite is my birthday, November the 8th. So for what it's worth, there it is. Uh, but St. Michael's Feast Day has a number of, um, a number of things uh, attached to it. One, of course, is don't be shocked praying to St. Michael. Now, this particular feast day is the dedication of St. Michael. Because there was in Rome a church, a great church dedicated to St. Michael on the Salarian, right? And it was dedicated on September 29th. It fell into disuse and then became a ruin and then was completely lost to history until about a decade ago, I think. They discovered its its locale and it's now the site of archaeological work. Um, but he has other feasts. Uh, in uh, May, there was the apparition of St. Michael at Monte Gargano. Uh, on October 6th, in the old French calendar, was his apparition of Mont Saint-Michel in uh, Normandy. Uh, November 8th was another apparition in uh, Asia Minor during the Byzantine years, and so it goes. 
St. Michael has made a number of apparitions, and there are a number of really wonderful shrines dedicated to him around the world. In Spain, and Italy, and England, and France, and Germany, and Switzerland, uh, Mexico, and the Philippines. So, in the new calendar, the only one of, uh, of, the, of the feasts of the angels, well, actually there are two of them, because October the 2nd, Feast of the Guardian Angels they kept. But St. Gabriel and St. Raphael both lost theirs and were stuffed together with St. Michael on November 29th. So in the new calendar, it's like the Anglican calendar, St. Michael and all angels. But cut it any way you like. September the 29th is a day to remember, pray to, venerate, and learn about the angels. So that's an important thing. The second thing is that goose was a favored mate on uh, St. Michael's Day in England. It's not that you don't get geese that, goose that common in the United States, so I can only recommend chicken or turkey, but have some poultry on St. Michael's Day. They also called chrysanthemums, which grow this time of year yes. and bloom. St. Michael's Day are Michaelmas daisies. So you can bring in some chrysanthemums. The uh, I read once, I forget where now, uh, it's probably something kind of weird, <laughs> but the idea that St. Michael cuts the heat of summer. And if you're raised in Southern California, that's a wonderful idea because September is often our hottest month and boy, oh boy, do we need an end to it. So get your chrysanthemum, eat your poultry, Pray to the angels, remember the St. Michael prayer, both the short and the long one, and remember that he really is the patron of the universal church against the, the demon. Especially pray for the Holy Father on St. Michael's Day, and that St. Michael will enlighten him the way he enlightened Leo XIII. Um, yes. That, I think that should do it for St. Michael's Day. Amen. Absolutely. So the ordinariate, I was surprised to learn, Mr. Cologne, that you are a member of the ordinariate uh, by ritual. As a French Canadian in the United <laughs> States, I, I thought you'd be a Latin mass by right. Obviously, you're a great lover of the Latin mass and supporter, but uh, your actual right itself is ordinariate. So can you tell us about uh, why did you join the ordinariate? What do you love about the ordinariate? History about it, wherever you want to go with this. Well, okay, firstly, I am indeed one of the extremely few cradle Catholics who are canonical members of the Ordinariate. And you were quite right in presuming that the Latin Mass would be my uh, canonical place. And it was for most of my life. Except, of course, the Latin Masses weren't really permitted. So what I got was the Novus Ordo with put your hand in the hands of the man. In other words, to understand why I've got a connection with the ordinariate, you've got to go back a little bit into my personal history. So let's do so. The year of our Lord, 1976. Now, I was 15 in February of that year. And in those days, my only real... Well, it's between Christ among us and put your hands in the hands of the man. Uh, 
my experience of Catholicism was very, let's just say the only real Catholic sources in my life were my parents and my confessor, the late and much lamented James Francis Cardinal McIntyre. Now, Cardinal McIntyre um, held forth at St. Basil's on Wilshire Boulevard, and he became my, my confessor, he was retired by then. He became, became my confessor by accident, really. I ran into him at the cathedral and we started talking, uh, not the cathedral, St. Basil's. And that was it. So from that time on, I would see him once a week. He was the one who introduced me to uh, Dom Colombo Marmion, to Thomas Akempis, to uh, really all of the Precious Blood uh, books. You know, the, the Confraternity of the Precious Blood put out this great series yeah that he he gave me a copy of that 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 edition yeah just for viewers the, you need to get this pocket copy it's essential if you don't have the imitation of christ this is the one you want absolutely and it's got great dore in uh illustrations it's so that was uh, you know i i got introduced to that in high school but which was all very nice but it's sort of book learning if you know what i mean and the Cardinals of the opinion that my faith was slowly being drained out of me through a lack of exposure to um, decent liturgy. So, said to me one day, here's what I want you to do. And understand this is coming from an Irish New Yorker, a New York Irishman. So keep that in mind. Shows you how desperate the times were. <laughs> Remember, there's no Latin masses. I mean, he offered it every day, but he didn't give communion. It was just a, a very private mass. Uh, Father Shell was up in the valley saying mass in different hotels, but that was it was it was banished. Everything the Holy Father would like now had come to pass, at least in Ally. And Cardinal McIntyre, as I say, was afraid that my faith would go down the drain with it. So he said, "What I want you to do." Go to Mass Saturday night, fulfill your obligation, receive communion. And then on Sunday, I want you to go into town. There's a church called St. Mary of the Angels in Hollywood. Now, it's an Episcopal church, so you won't receive communion. But you will see an approximation of how the liturgy should be done. Well, as it happened in those days, St. Mary's, which was a very higher-than-the-kite Anglo-Catholic church, Every other Sunday, they would do the um, uh, ordinary of the Mass in English, you know, the chanted parts, and every other Sunday in Latin. Well, Septuagesima, Sunday, 1976, I blundered in, and it was the Latin Sunday. So I um, saw the Asperges for the first time, and I was entranced. But I wasn't just entranced by the, uh, by the liturgy, which was sublime. Uh, the pamphlet rack caught my attention. Because you see, in those days, when Anglo-Catholics lived in the same um, church bodies with virtual Methodists, slow churches, evangelicals, and so on, they had to explain all of their unique practices, prayers to the, uh, the saints, to Our Lady, prayers to the dead, the real presence, candles, lights, incense, um, everything 
you can imagine had to be explained in pamphlets for other Episcopalians who come blundering in wondering, you know, what's all this stuff? Uh, but it so happened that these things were objectively speaking, very great explanations and defenses of Catholic teaching. Precisely the sort of thing I should have been getting in high school, that we all should have been, and of course, weren't. Um, and, just, and just for viewers, let, let me just say that Anglo-Catholics, so-called, are basically Episcopalians not in communion with Rome at this time, but they basically believe a, a great swath of Catholic teachings, like you said, like seven sacraments, saints, and all that. Just so viewers are aware of that, it's sort of a unique movement, has a, long, a little history. Right. And in this particular church, they prayed for the Pope during Mass, which is sort of interesting. Because wow. within Anglo-Catholicism itself, there was always sort of, there was a division between the papalists and the non-papalists, as you were, as you might say. And these folks were papalists. So anyway, now you might wonder, why didn't they just convert? Well, initially, there was the whole idea that uh, they would somehow Catholicize the whole Anglican communion and then come into union with Rome. And there was a time when it looked like it might happen long ago. Uh, but then, of course, by the time of our story, uh, Anglo-Catholic parishes tend to look more Catholic than your average Catholic parish. And well, that's the way it was, you know. I, uh, I hate to introduce reality into any question, uh, but nevertheless, sometimes we have to. So the, um, uh, the thing was that this was 1976, and this was the watershed year in which the Episcopal Church would be voting on um, the ordination of women. So there were also explanations of why we have a male-only priesthood and why, if that were lost, the Anglicans could no longer claim to be a Catholic church, quote-unquote. Because remember, the whole notion of Anglo-Catholicism and to some degree of Anglicanism as a whole was what's called the branch theory. The idea that there is a Catholic Church of which the Romans, the Orthodox, and the Anglicans are equal members. Well, the idea was that if they ordain women, that destroys their being part of the Catholic Church. So that they went into that in, in great detail, I can tell you. Uh, the, the, so that was the second thing that impressed me. The third thing, I mentioned that my parents were uh, very literate Catholics of a sort that's, uh, and my dad was French Canadian. My mother was not, it wasn't her fault, but uh, her family too were quite literate, but not what you would call uh, ethnic Catholics. So they, I mean, ethnic Irish. But they were very, um, they were certainly very literate Catholics as well. And I was used to that kind of literate Catholicism as a French and German thing. But it wasn't something I was used to amongst English speakers. But these people at St. Mary's, they were actors and writers and artists and all sorts of interesting people who were really trying to apply the Catholic faith as they saw it to their actual lives. 
and they knew about things like history and literature and so on that um, most Catholics of of that time with whom I was familiar were not. So the people were very interesting. Um, <laughs> there was an elderly lady there named Millicent who was a, a costume designer in Hollywood. Her uh, professional name being Millicent of Hollywood. When I finally brought my parents to this place, they looked at each other and Millicent says, Pat, Guy? And my parents said, Millicent? Well, they had known her in New York when she was Millicent of Broadway. <laughs> and they were actors. So from that time on, whenever I would see her, she would say, how are your parents, dear? And I'd say, oh, they're, they're fine. She would say, you know, I just love those kids. <laughs> Anybody who thought of my parents as kids, you know. So at any rate, moving along, uh, what happened then was that the Episcopal Church did indeed bring in the ordination of women. And so St. Mary's and a number of other uh, parishes seceded from the Episcopal Church. But of the bunch that seceded, they broke into two groups fairly quickly. A larger group went off to become uh, what's called today the continuum, groups like the Anglican Catholic Church, the Anglican Church in North America, and so on. But a few of them, spearheaded by St. Mary's, uh, veered to Rome. And what they initially wanted to do was create a sort of uniate right kind of thing in communion with Rome. They made a deal with Paul VI and Cardinal Shepherd, but then a couple of things happened. Paul VI died, and then John Paul II came in, and then Cardinal Shepherd died. So the whole thing had to be renegotiated, and the result was what was called the pastoral provision. And this allowed um, groups of Anglicans to be brought into the church as individuals. And if the local, they'd be stay under the local Catholic bishop, and if he would allow it, they would be formed as a parish which would retain certain elements of Anglican piety and ritual. But it was all dependent on the local bishop. Well, unfortunately, our cardinal, uh, through the two of them in succession, Manning and Mahoney, were very close to the local Episcopal bishop with whom St. Mary's had fought a knockdown drag out uh, legal battle. So they rejected them. Father Barker, the rector, went to a neighboring diocese, became a Catholic priest. A lot of the members left and became Catholics, and those who didn't stayed, and they went into a continuing church. That was the directly, that, that not coming into the Catholic church was directly the responsibility, ultimately, of Cardinal Mahoney. Now, Having said that, when they went off into the continuum, that was sort of the last I dealt with them for a while, though I'd occasionally look in. But when uh, Pope Benedict came up with the ordinariates, uh, they were definitely a candidate for admission. And one of the major differences, well, several between the ordinariates and the original pastoral provision. Firstly, they're, in, they're independent bodies. Secondly, communities are received as groups, not as individuals. And they are totally independent of the local Latin bishop. Um, there are three ordinaries, three ordinariates, one in Great Britain, 
one that covers North America, the United States and Canada, and one in Australia, which also has outposts in Japan and uh, I think the Philippines. So, so is that is that three bishops then? Yes. Well, no, okay. because the ordinary does not have to be a bishop, and oh, in fact. The first ordinary uh, in the United States, Monsignor Steenson, was a former Episcopal bishop who became a Catholic priest and was made uh, ordinary. The current ordinary, Bishop Lopes, is a bishop. Now, like myself, he was, he's a cradle Catholic. And like myself, he's an ethnic Catholic. Uh, because you see, well, I'll touch on that in a minute. In terms of my own story, uh, when it looked like St. Mary's was going to come into the Catholic Church, uh, I was called on by the priest, Monsignor Steenson, who was, uh, uh, not Steenson, sorry, Stetson. They're two different men. Stetson and Steenson, easy to confuse. Steenson was the first ordinary. Stetson was the archdiocesan priest in L.A. who was charged with bringing them into the church. Um Unfortunately, there was an internal struggle in the church, which had nothing to do with the ordinariate, but resulted in a legal split and basically put it out of the running because there was no way that the ordinariate was going to take in a, uh, a battle like that. It was very, very unfortunate. However, one of the clergy there whom I'd gotten to know, uh, when he was received into the church, I was his godfather. And he founded a new ordinariate parish in Southern California. And the um, uh, at that moment in time, there was a short period when founding members of ordinariate communities who were cradle Catholics could be received canonically into the ordinariate. So uh, my godson said, well, would you like to come in? I said, well, hold on. Hold on. I've got to think about this. This would mean leaving the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, where I was nurtured in the Catholic faith through my childhood and youth. I've got to think about it. I've thought about it. I'll do it. So uh, that was how I became a member of the Ordinariate, frankly. Excellent. That's excellent. Uh, what wonderful thing that God, God bringing good out of evil in um, the... Uh you know, nourishing you in the Catholic faith by means of technically non-Catholics who are happen to be more Catholic in one way, at least, than the, the actual canonical Catholics. Um, so, and, so and, and they, in turn, I'll just say parenthetically, because of them, I got to know Father Theodore Wilcock, SJ, who was the pastor of the Russian Catholic parish in El Segundo, wow. isn't he? So... When I was in uh, in high school, between the then Romeward bound Anglo Catholics of St. Mary's, the Byzantine Russians of El Segundo, my parents and Cardinal Mahoney, not Cardinal Mahoney, my gosh, help me, Cardinal McIntyre, that was the only access to authentic Catholicism I had, which is why, as the years went by, and uh, Sanity returned to the church. Then Benedict comes in. And the great thing about Benedict, every time you turn around, he did something neat. 
It was like every day I couldn't wait to rush to the computer to see the latest goodie he was throwing at us. It's like, you know, your old grandfather pulling something down for the attic. How about this, kids? You want this? Yeah. Oh, now look at this. I haven't seen this since Sharon Cecilia was alive. How about this? Yes. And so it would go. Uh, boy, did I, did I enjoy Benedict's years in, in office. And the thing is, the reason why he gave us the ordinary, and there's an important purpose here, it was not simply to act as a museum piece for Anglo-Catholicism. Not at all. Rather, I saw several things in it. One, that Anglicans had either preserved various bits of Catholicity from the Middle Ages that had been lost to us, uh, either after the Counter-Reformation or definitely after Vatican II. They had preserved a sort of piety and all this kind of thing, which he felt was good for the church as a whole. But also, he saw it as a means of evangelizing the Anglosphere. And I believe that what both Bishop Lopes and I see in it, I say believe because uh, I, I won't pretend that we're, uh, we're constantly consult, but I mean, we've had a few conversations on the, on the matter. And that is, both of us are products of an integral Catholic identity. Portuguese for him, French Canadian for me. The project of doing something similar for English-speaking Catholicism, a Catholicism that is as much a part of the landscape as anything else, uh, a means of evangelizing the countries that speak English. Powerful, powerful possibility. Now, it had everything against it. A lot of Catholics, both right and left, for very different reasons, opposed it. Certainly a lot of non-Catholics opposed it. And it is something that will probably only see its full potential where the highest leadership is again interested in evangelization. Because you see, that's what the ordinariates are really about. Evangelizing the Anglosphere. That's wonderful. I, I, I want to ask two questions. One, is this the greatest reconversion of Protestants since the Reformation in terms of groups of, of Protestants en masse? And also, can you talk about the ordinary at liturgy? And as we talked about Latin mass, what is the ordinary at liturgy like? All right. Well, I um, don't know that it's the largest single return of Protestants to the church, but it certainly has to rate up there if it isn't. Uh, and again, these are these are people who tend to be very thoughtful, very literate, well-read, very committed to their faith. Uh, and it's also important to bear in mind that while many of them came into the church because uh, initially because of the ordination of women or or gay marriage or whatever, the it wasn't simply to escape those things that they've come in. What they came to realize was that their Catholicity 
was only an opinion that was no truer or more false in the Anglican scheme of things than any other opinion, if you see what I mean. In other words, what they believe, the Blessed Sacrament, prayer for the dead, all that sort of thing, is dogma in the Catholic Church. In the Anglican Church, it was always one of several acceptable options. You could believe in the real presence or not. You could believe in the uh, ordination of women or not. There's a difference between truth and tolerance. So, or to put it another way, a question of ecclesiology. So, it's true that these different things forced them to examine who and what they were. But it's important to bear in mind that they didn't become Catholic as a rule simply to escape these things. They were the, the catalyst in thought. The other thing to bear in mind is that the uh, as far as the liturgy and all that goes, primarily it's the uh, the Tridentine Mass in English. Now that's a bit of an oversimplification because there are other elements that uh, came directly from Anglicanism and most of those in turn are remnants of the old Sarum rite. That is to say the, the way the Mass was done in England before the, uh, the revolt. Um, there's a lot of use of Latin. There's only the one canon uh, and that uh, that could be in English or Latin. Um, the it's the the uh, <clears throat> mass is said at Orientum. Um, the English is uh, Elizabethan. It's not, you know, sort of the uh, well. My my mother rather her rather cruel comment on the English of the Novus Ordo when she was asked what she thought of the mass in English, she said, "I don't know." I've never heard it in real English. Yeah, and with your spirit, it's it's uh, not very sacred, certainly. No, and and also with you. So, it, it, and with your spirit, well, it, it's better. And with thy spirit is what you'll get in uh, in the ordinary. And you'll get the Holy Ghost. You know, you remember him. So <clears throat> it's a um, it's a liturgy that um, you'll, 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 it, it's, it's easy to get used to, let's put it that way. Especially if your familiarity with the Catholic uh, Mass is restricted to the Novus Ordo. Uh, you'll You'll really, really go for it. I have to admit that when I'm at home in California, I double dip. I go to the ordinary at mass in the morning, and I go to the Latin mass in the afternoon. So, the now you know my my dirty little secret. But well, where where do you attend in Vienna? There, there's no ordinary at parish in Vienna, right? No, there isn't. So, uh, what I do, I still double dip. In the morning here in Truma, I go to the Byzantine liturgy. And then in the afternoon at four, at uh, five rather, 
I go to the uh, Latin Mass of the Palanakeche. The FSSP put that on. So, although interestingly enough, <laughs> we just had a very exciting event. There's a, a uh, church in the most prominent quarter of town, uh, right by the uh, chancery where the Austrian equivalent of the prime minister uh, holds forth, called the Minoritenkirche, which was the Franciscan church. But Joseph II, who didn't like religious orders, took it from the Franciscans and gave it to the Italian community of Vienna. So it was not owned by the archdiocese. <clears throat> well, the archdiocese has been trying to get it for a long time. The Italian community of Vienna just gave it away for a nominal fee to the Society of St. Pius X. <laughs> oh, that's great. Good news. Yeah. So it's it's great when the SSPX repossesses those old churches that are that are dying. It's it's usually a a story of resurrection. Well, you see, the thing the thing that makes it even happier for me is that uh, you'll have noticed that the application of the so-called modu proprio has been very spotty. Some bishops who like believe in souls and stuff uh, have invoked Canon eighty-seven for the good of their of their uh, of their children. Others who uh, perhaps worry about the cash or whatever uh, have said we'll take it under advisement, which you know is Bishop E's for forget about it. the The best sign here is that Cardinal Dolan has ignored it, and. The reason why that's a good sign is that Cardinal Dolan is always on the winning side. If you want to know who's going to prevail at any given moment, it's him. He knows which way the Holy Ghost is blowing. <laughs> okay. Interesting. It's true. Believe me. I mean, I, I knew that the two uh, synods in the family were not going to go the way the Pope wanted them to because of the way Dolan ended up falling. Oh. Interesting. So you watch Cardinal Dolan. He uh, he knows who he knows where his bread's buttered. Anyhow, the uh, the thing is that um, uh, the <laughs> the bishops of Puerto Rico forbade the traditional mass, and I think at least one of them forbade the new mass in Latin. Oh, Costa Rica. Uh, yeah. Costa Rica. You can't do the new mass in Latin, and you can't wear old-fashioned vestments. I mean, this is so ultra-virus. This is so their brains are popping out of their rear ends that, you know, you expect to see them explode like uh, the blob. I mean, it. Uh, I hate to be vulgar, but... We had a, uh, a drill, uh, a drill instructor when I was in boot camp, who uh, had a had a comment, which was, "How about we stop sitting on our faces?" That's if you think about the implications of that. It's a message I would like to deliver to many in the church today, because they they, they make this stuff off out of nothing. Yeah. They just, woo, I'm going to do this now. Oh, wow, it's so great. It's, it's the triumph of the will 
in the triumph of the will, uh, when the will is sliding into senescence, it's senility triumphant. Yeah, senility and triumphant. That, that's that's a perfect way to say it. Uh, yeah, it's trying. It's senility triumph of the screamers. Yeah, I mean, you know, imagine uh, I don't know. President Hindenburg is Liberace, but. <laughs> I want to ask you about um, in closing about the quickly about the conference you were just at. But before we do that, um, I was just looking at the website. How can how can someone find out if they have an ordinary parish near you? I know some Latin mass attendees are taking refuge in the Byzantine Rite, um, but you may have a ordinary parish near you. I see there's a there's a UK website. Um, should we just? find it on they just have a website to find them yeah let's see i've got uh looks like so there's a american and uk and australian version you just look up the database here yeah all right well find out if you have an ordinary parish near you viewers if you do check it out if that's something that you need to take refuge as a liturgical refugee. Um, any final thoughts on the ordinary before I ask about the European Conservative Conference? Yeah, and uh, my, the, biggest, uh, the biggest thing I'll say about the ordinary, frankly, uh, there's one bit of the Anglican patrimony that has definitely made the jump is that ordinary parishes are generally pretty jovial, jolly places. You know that phrase, jolly old England? Well, it was not entirely untrue. And, you know, the, the uh, how do I put it? A few of the parishes have gotten into the, uh, have gotten into things like the Boar's Head Festival uh, at, at the Epiphany and things like that. And uh, it's, it's, it's great fun. Uh, because remember, the devil wants us to despair. He wants us to be unhappy. And one of the um, geniuses, if I may say this, of the Anglican patrimony was that it knew how to enjoy what can be enjoyed properly. And that was true, of course, uh, before the Protestant revolt. It was one of the better elements of English Catholicism that uh, both amongst the recusants and their uh, Anglican adversaries survived. It's something that we should learn to embrace. The more the believing, practicing Catholic enjoys it, the more it will annoy the devil. And those members of the human race who uh, are in his employ. Yes. Yeah, that reminds you me. You know of, who you are. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of one of my favorite uh, historic pieces of English uh, history, which is the um, cartoon that was mocking Oliver Cromwell, where Father Christmas is coming to town because Oliver, Cr Oliver Cromwell had outlawed Christmas in England. <sighs> and he's coming to town and, and, and he's trying, <laughs> trying to get father christmas back in town so they could celebrate christmas against oliver cromwell 
So they're just laughing about it, basically, to kind of mock the ridiculousness of this Puritan regime. Well, see, that's it. You know, you, you laugh, but part of the identity of Anglo-Catholicism, the so-called Anglican patrimony, was, in fact, forged not simply through retaining bits and pieces of the Middle Ages, but in outright opposition to Puritanism. And that is a spirit that we need more of. Definitely in America. Yes. The, the, the cavalier, the, uh, you know, the, the, the devil-may-care attitude. Uh, we need more of that, not less. Excellent. Well, we've got about five more minutes. Can you touch on the state of Christendom and uh, the conservative traditional movement in Europe? You were just at the Eng Amer European Conservative Conference, uh, which is the magazine that you are also contributed editor for. Can you tell us about, at all about that? What's the state of conservatism in Europe? Well, in a nutshell, the uh, the conference was to celebrate the new uh, the new version, you might say, of the uh, European Conservative. Um, the uh, there were three panels. The first was conservatism in academia, in which I was on. The second was conservatism and uh, the media, and the third was conservatism and the market. The one that had the most, uh, shall we say, spirited disagreements were on uh, with a third on the market because as you can guess there were integralists versus uh free marketeers uh both of whom would fit under the uh, the banner as you might say as far as conservatism in europe go in general goes while for various reasons central europe is becoming something of a bastion uh to a degree with hungary and slovakia and poland uh kind of leading the way. Um, there are still a lot of conservatives in the rest of Europe, in Western Europe, uh, which is, of course, dominated even by, by parties that are called conservative or Christian Democrat, but nevertheless are indistinguishable in terms of their uh, affection for infanticide and uh, gender confusion. Uh, they're indistinguishable from uh, liberal parties. Um, or socialist parties. The nature of conservatism in Europe, however, is quite different from that in America for a simple reason. And this is something that, again, is part of what we're going to have to look at one day as Americans. And that is um, what we Americans like to call liberals. Traditionally in Europe and Latin America were called socialists. What we call conservatives, they called liberals. What they call conservatives, we don't have. Because they were opponents to the spirit, uh, one, of the French Revolution, and two, in the Catholic countries, uh, of the Reformation. Our conservatism has been more, uh, as with classical liberalism here in Europe, has been more concerned with free markets and so on. And really, not that much else. Anti-communism was a big unifying thing. But with the fall of the Soviet Union, paradoxically, um, the question of what conservatism is and what it is we're trying to conserve becomes very difficult. 
although it's it's easier in a sense in Europe because they have a long history of the sort of conservatism I mentioned. For us in America, it becomes difficult because the fall of communism forces us back to, okay, well, who are we? What is it we really are trying to conserve? And the problem is there's no real clear answer to that at the moment. Are we trying to preserve the 1950s? Are we trying to preserve the antebellum republic? Are we trying to preserve the Constitution? And if so, at what stage? These, this is why I go back to one reason why I'm, I'm keen on doing this book. Uh, is that I think, I think a patriotism, a love of America that's based upon what we actually have is very, very important. Uh, Europeans know what they would like to conserve, restore, in-store. We don't. And one reason why because our, our quote-unquote conservatism has to a great degree really been a kind of liberalism, we lost the fight in the arts and in academia and so on long, long ago because we, our leadership, and our, by ours I mean the so-called conservative leadership, just were not equipped to fight that battle. They weren't even thinking of it. Even now, uh, the, the Republican Party has completely capitulated on abortion. Um, not the local level in different places, but I mean the National Party. So anyway, it's, it's uh, in Europe, the Christian Democratic parties have done the same thing. It's interesting that the Fidesz Party in Hungary was forced to withdraw from the European People's Party, which is the Christian Democrat umbrella group at the European Parliament in Brussels they were made to withdraw. So the future of conservatism in Europe, as in America, does not lie, at least as, so far as one can see, does not lie in the self-proclaimed conservative parties anymore. The difference, though, as I say, is that there is some community of thought as to where a conservative Europe, a Europe of the right would be going toward. There is some continuity there. In our country, we don't have anything like that. And finding it, discovering it, or if necessary, inventing it is going to be the big task facing us in the next several decades, I believe. Well, that, that's excellent. That's, it's um, a great place to start, like we said, with your book. And I love what you do in Puritan's Empire. You talk about the founding of Catholic America in the French and the Spanish Christendom. And there really never was an English Christendom to speak of in the continental United States. Um, but that's really, especially what we want to do at 1 Peter 5 is rebuild Christendom to, to not only be against modernism, but for something, to do something, to conserve something, like you said. Um, yeah. And that, Go ahead. that, the what we're for, and this, this has been the big problem in the past few decades. You know, if you wonder why we've collapsed so quickly, 
it's because so much, and, and this again, reading backward from having lived through it, so much of what we who called ourselves conservatives, what united us was simply opposition of the Soviet Union. And then when that, when that was gone, now what? And of course, there was no, with the Soviets gone, there was no reason why our leaders should bother about freedom. Why talk about the free world when they're, they're one part is very much like another. I, um, I have to say one thing that has certainly come to me in the years that I've been here, Mr. Bush Sr. made a big, big mistake in not sort of martial planning uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. If the money that had gone to the forever wars had gone into rehabilitating the former communist countries, the world would be a happier place, I think. But of course, that wouldn't address the, the moral collapse of the West, which no amount of money is is and it could be it could be, you know, that if they had done as I've just said, it could be that the rot would have been much greater in Central Europe than it is. So I I don't know. It's you know, ladies and gentlemen, the thing about life, and this is true whether you're a pope or president or peon. Uh, you do the best you can with what you know, but you've always got to remember that only God himself knows the outcome. Uh, that's a perfect way to end this out, uh, this discussion, Mr. Colon. Thank you so much for your time. I very much uh, am honored. We're honored at 1 Peter 5 to have you as a contributing editor. So look forward to tomorrow, his piece on what is criticism, and then Wednesday, Michaelmas. And I think uh, let's offer in our father for this intention, what Mr. Cologne pointed out, that we need to enjoy Catholicism. We need to take joy in the life of grace and eat goose. Uh, I have a, have a Satan pinata with your, with your children, which is what I'm going to do. Uh, have them beat up Satan and say, the Lord rebuke you and have some candy and enjoy the life of grace and pass this down to our children. And that's what, that's what will make the devil very angry. So let's pray for that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.